Welcome to the Enlighten Up podcast. I'm Lisa Watson and will be joined by my co-hosts Nicole Frolic and Brian Koenigberg. The Enlighten Up podcast is a weekly show that provides an unconventional and refreshing spin on spirituality, where three friends and weekly guests share informative, fun, and usually off-the-wall conversations. Unlike others, we provide fringe and skeptical viewpoints on all topics, because our experience has taught us that the echo chamber is a boring place from which to learn. So regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, we can promise you, you're going to find a place to fit in here. So we invite you to grab a drink and listen in on our casual, entertaining, and hopefully enlightening conversation. And Enlighten Up is a self-funded podcast. So if you would like to help us to continue to be able to produce, enhance, and expand the show for our audience, then please send your support using the link in the show notes or go to our website, lightenup.us, and check out our merchandise shop where you can purchase merchandise that will allow you to express some spiritual humor. You may also show your support by leaving us a review on iTunes and following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us. And now let's jump right into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Enlighten Up podcast. You are here with Lisa, Brian, and myself. And today we're going to be going down the road of vampires. We have not talked about this topic on the show, and we're excited to explore it. We'll be exploring it with Varla Ventura, who is the author of Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghosts, Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings, as well as the book Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings. A Complete Guide to the Wild and Wicked Enchanted Realm, along with several other books on spooky, ooky stuff. She can often be found lurking around the deep, dark woods, lakes, streams, and parlors on the hunt for beastly things and hidden history. Varla, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I am doing wonderful. So great to have me. you on. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. We have not touched on vampires, and you have a plethora of stories and information. You're very well uh, versed in the folklore stories, as well as people who actually identify as vampires here and now at this time. Yes, um, I have been uh, accused of being a vampire on occasion or questioned. I, I will go on record as saying I am not, but I am, I am vampire friendly. <laughs> vampire friendly so okay for our audience and of course i think all three of us yes. can you <laughs> can you explain you. to us yeah what a vampire okay let's go into what a vampire of what people consider the vampires to be and is it any different than what people identify as vampires now today Yes, well, I think we we have sort of a very romantic view of what a vampire is. Um, this is brought to you by Bram Stoker and um, later, you know, the Bela Lugosi playing Dracula. Nosferatu. Nosferatu, although he was sort of hideous, where I think with well, Bela Lugosi... Well, that's what a Nosferatu vampire is, is, is meant to be hideous. So Bela Lugosi sort of brought the um, Hollywood glamour to the vampire and how the vampire looks today. And I do think that was sort of a changing, uh, a bit of a change compared to um, the more feared and loathsome vampire, as you said, with Nosferatu. Um, Because of course, vampires, although we sort of are obsessed and revere them today in many ways, once upon a time were a very real um, fear and, and threat. And in many cases were viewed much in the way a witch 
would be viewed. So um, it was another sort of scapegoat term that you could use to call somebody a vampire and accuse them of having some sort of supernatural power or hold over you. And therefore they should be, you know, buried with a brick in their mouth or something like that. Mm. So it was during the middle ages when, you know, people were um, accusing one and you know, people of women, especially of being witches. It was also um, vampires did kind of get that rap as well. <laughs> and um, it wasn't really until probably the Victorian era that we, we began a more literary obsession with the vampire. Um, and around that time, is when we began to notice things like the vampire bat and some of its behaviors. And I think that's probably when the idea of a blood-sucking creature um, transforming into a bat really sort of became more part of our popular association with vampires. Um, But there's a lot of instances of, you know, various kind of vampiric-like creatures throughout time and history. But as we think of vampires today, um, that really sort of became popular during uh, post-Bram Stoker and um, throughout the sort of Victorian era. And I think there's a pretty direct um, coalition between the oppression and suppression of people's sexuality and morality during this time in history. And the idea that there was this sort of um, sultry, immortal uh, creature that could swoop in and did have uh, vampires have more of a sexual energy than really any other supernatural creature. Mm -hmm. So I think there's you will find the uptick in uh, reading these types. It was like, you know, the, the, the pulp romance of the day. You could mm-hmm. kind of hide out in your parlor and read this um, rather steamy vampire story, but it was supernatural. It was, so it was fiction and it was not considered really lewd because it was under the guise of this um, imaginary creature. Okay. So, my understanding of vampires is very much what you just described, more of like, you know, the vampire turning into the bat and all that kind of stuff. What is the origin point of it? What were they doing before like a lot of fear um, was kind of pushed into the narrative? What were the vampires typically doing? So the... I think when just to go back to Bram Stoker for a second, we know we know that he took some um, liberties with history and sort of as an author does mixed some different stories. So many people know the association of Vlad Dracula with Vlad the Impaler, who was this um, rather fierce um, and very feared ruler who would, you know, drive stake to put people's heads on stakes and was, was thought to be very, you know, particularly bloody and violent. But there was also the place, you know, in, in uh, Hungary, the Hungarian vamp- vampire was also in folklore sort of the basis of this um, lord living in a castle, kind of lording over this, this manor and suspected to be a vampire. But there, there is actually quite a bit of um, history and, in fact, I worked on a book with somebody who whose I guess, descendants, I, probably four times, you know, great, 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 great grandmother had been a Romany 
uh, Gypsy, mm-hmm. and that their group um, had a relationship with a lord of the manor who was thought to be a vampire. And there was sort of an agreed upon, um, I guess, symbiotic relationship of a donor and a um, a feeder. And they would frequently move from land baron's property to land baron's property. And someone in the group, often a younger woman, would um, go would basically be given up to this uh, lord of the manor. Now, what they were actually doing, you know, that part of history is sort of blurred out. Many people say that there were sort of rituals or that the the uh, the lord, the vampire lord was trying to um, get energy and and life from someone younger. And of course, there are all kinds of rich traditions around this. You do have some examples of women as well. I think Elizabeth Bathory was probably is probably the most famous where she was said to bathe in the blood of all of these young maids that would come to her home and she would kill them and bathe in their blood or drain their blood. And it was an attempt to uh, look younger and more beautiful and be immortal. Um, History shows us that there's a very strong bias against women in power. I think we know this. So um, some of the things that I had read even growing up about this like horrific countess, and even in my research had had uncovered over and over again, these um, tales of this horrific countess, Elizabeth Bathory. In, In the light of the day, I have come to realize that she also was one of the most powerful women of of that time and had a great deal of land and money not saying she was necessarily a kind person um there's a but you know when when you are someone in power there's usually a smear campaign and eventually she was sort of walled up in her own castle and she was put on trial and convicted for of uh being excessively cruel and murder and um i believe she was even uh sort of died in that castle, sort of bricked away, um, which is not at all what you asked, but that's where we <laughs> ended up. Uh, so I guess there, there is a, a rich history in, um, Rome, in Romania and Hungary and the Romani culture of a kind of like donor relationship. And I think that we associate vampires with blood and we associate vampires with this kind of life force. But one thing that I have learned from working with, um, for example, I helped edit a book of of vampire magic from a ritual vampire magician who really identifies with the vampire culture, but it's a very energetic thing. I think we've all met, you know, energy vampires at times in our lives, people Mm -hmm. that we talk to and we feel drained. So some of this, um, I think was probably the case then that it was more of an energetic thing, sort of a, um, spiritual thing. And some of it has been embellished and some of it has, you know, there, there are instances of, um, well, there, it's difficult to say because again, the record is rather biased just as it's biased against, against witches. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you do have, uh, you know, very, very early words in um, both Hungarian and Turkish, um, Hungarian vampire and Turkish uh, 
I will probably mispronounce it, but it's it's Vupier or Upier, which actually means witch. So it was a person of supernatural power. And in particular, in that sort of eastern part of Europe, um, I think you had, you know, more more witches in Ireland and more vampires in Hungary, just by mm-hmm. nature of the um, the culture and the belief systems. So I think some things evolved from that. You know, we're talking like the 16, 1700s. Mm-hmm. What were some of the supernatural powers that the vampires would um, be known for? So some were good and some were bad. Um, again, as, as they were accused of being essentially scapegoats, you know, a, a vampire could be the, the result of a pox or, you know, your, all of your sheep dropping dead, um, that they were thought to be able to control the weather, um, ha- mostly disease and famine. Um, those were things that vampires, especially in um, older superstitious uh, communities, a bit, you know, they still still believe that. And I say superstitious not to be dismissive of it, because I actually know from experience that a lot of those superstitions are rooted in um, wisdom and uh, reality. <laughs> so, um but they, the idea of being able to sort of trans, transfigure or um, shapeshift is often associated with vampires. It was not always with the what we know as a vampire bat. It was sometimes other winged creatures. You see this theme repeatedly. What's that? Or, or mist. mist? You do see that shapeshifting um, theme throughout the world and throughout uh, the, you know, the fairy kingdom in Ireland. And you see things like pukas that can transform into bunnies and hop away or things like that. So that there is a more animalistic quality that we often don't always associate today with the vampire. Usually we associate bats, um, you know, cause we associate it with blood or creatures of the night and um, something, you know, of course bats come out at night. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. So I didn't realize that um, they that that was actually what they were known for. Uh, a lot of the the powers that you've just explained. That's really interesting. Because obviously, we hear a lot about witches, but I didn't realize that it's kind of um, quite similar in many ways. But it sounds to me that they're known for their use of energy um, through, like you said, it's in today's, it's more of like stealing energy force or using it. Um, like an energy vampire walks into a room, they don't even know that they are, but they're just constantly robbing everyone of their, their energy and just draining them, making them feel exhausted. With these abilities, these superpowers, is it kind of like drawing upon, do they, were they drawing upon collective energies to like, say, affect the weather or kill sheep? Well, just a, a couple of a couple of points. One, I, I think if you ran into um, an energy vampire who was just sort of draining, you know, draining the room, a modern day ethical vampire would say that that is an unethical and undeveloped someone who has not tapped into their powers. 
So one way to look at the vampire community today is much in the way that you might look at the, a Wiccan community or a community that practices um, some form of witchcraft. Some people have innate abilities. They have innate psychic abilities. They have innate um, uh, <laughs> ability of persuasion or things like that. And in the vampire community, you do have a variety of different personalities. So if you have somebody, you will, it's, it's um, similar to like a BDSM community. So you would have someone who is a dom and someone who is submissive, and both are getting something out of the relationship. In the vampire community, you have those similar kind of relationships. And with vampire magic, the idea is to use those energies to transform your life somehow, to create a ritual that transforms your life. So not to, you know, there, I'm not a member of that community. There are many other subtleties and, and secrets, I'm sure, that have not been revealed to me that may or may not involve other rituals. But um, to the best of my knowledge, it is a energetic kind of relationship. And so I think that that is what um, may have once upon a time been the most important part. Um, I also know that you know, vampires I know today are incredibly empathic and incredibly sensitive people. And so vampires, as they were also referred to as witches, were often healers and did possess the ability to, um, to see things, to prophesize, and also to really um, help people. And that, that was their, their um, role before they became sort of a more shunned or feared member of the community, which not surprisingly happened around the same time that um, the Roman Catholic Church came rolling in. <laughs> mm -hmm. And how did you like get into all of this? Like what really drew you into the world of vampires? Well, I, like many, um, you know, young teenagers, I loved to read Frankenstein and Dracula. And, you know, I just was very interested in horror at a young age. And so I was always reading those penguin book of vampire stories and all these different kind of collections. I was were, more were, drawn were you like me and you just it changed your world when Anne Rice started writing. You know, I, I'm a little I might be a little older than you. Anne Rice, by the time the Anne Rice books came out, I was um, I was sort of moving into a different, I was kind of moving more into like the ghosts and poltergeist mm -hmm. world. But I did, I, I mean, they, what they did is they sort of reinvigorated our lust for vampires Agreed. in, in society, which was great. It's great for anyone who works in the, you know, any of the occult fields. And if, if that's where you are looking for, um, if you want attention there, then when these kinds of things happen, that's great. Um, and yes, I mean, she's, she is, uh, and it is an incredibly talented writer and definitely sort of reinvigorated and recreated the, um, classic vampire. So that was really nice because it kind of brought back some of that glamour. And I think a lot of the vampires I know today were heavily influenced by that in their lives. Sure. And she's, she's my second favorite, second favorite author. And I bet I've read 
I bet I've read everything in the vampire series. Two or th- Who's two your or first three favorite? Stephen King? Tolkien. Oh, Tolkien. Okay. <laughs> cool. Um, oh, well, so you actually, I mean, uh, J.R. Tolkien, yeah. Oh, I know a lot about vampires there. I, 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 I'm really heavily drawn to them. When I was in college, I actually played, when I was in high school, I played, uh, you know, did a lot of role, role playing in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And when I went to college, uh, a vampire role playing game came out. In college? We did that every weekend. Play, pretended to, yeah, pre- I pretended to be a vampire, you know, every, every weekend in college. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking the, the things, things you look at your, your husband. I know. I was just, at least <laughs> I was about to know this. What? knew he liked the Anne Rice series. I've never read them. I just have never been drawn to it. Yeah. Did not know about the vampire role playing in college. <laughs> well, I believe I brought up Anne Rice on like the very first episode that I was on the podcast because I love her portrayal of the devil uh, in Memnock the Devil. Um, it is just such a great relationship that she built between who God was and who the devil was. And it, it's, it's like a way better version than what the church ever came up with. Well, and I think she must have been quite the scholar of um, fairy and folklore and because there's so many, that sort of idea of the devil versus God, you see that theme played out again and again in all of these different creatures, but especially in like the goat footed God and, and um, anything associated more with like the horned God. And you do see that again and again in, in, you know, occult history and in folklore. Um, so yeah, I just was really into this kind of stuff. I, I grew up in an environment where my, um, you know, my mom had on, on our shelf, we, you know, we did not go to church on Sunday, but you know, we had tarot cards and we would go and, um, uh, picnic in the cemetery. And, <laughs> um, you know, I learned about herbs and, um, we used to play psychic parlor games with my little brother and had a Ouija board. So that was very normal to me. So it was a normal segue to in the summertime, I'd stay at my grandma's and all the older cousins would leave behind, you know, the, the, Ripley's Believe It or Not and the Stephen King that I was far too young to be reading and all that kind of stuff. And it just really shaped my or misshaped my brain in a way that led me to, I mean, eventually I was writing and I was kind of working and editing some stuff. And then I kind of realized, oh, well, what would happen if I started writing about stuff that I would like to read? And that's how I started really you know, writing about um, magical creatures and bizarre trivia and uh, fairies and things like that. But the vampire community, um, I worked with two, two different vampires on their books. One was a kind of a, a vampire 101. And the other was a very heavy, very heady vampire um, ritual book that was really meant for people who were initiated into this vampiric society, which was sort of more, to me, it was more along the lines of like, um, the OTO or, or some kind of other, um, occult, um, like just 
very ritualized uh, form of a magical community. And I learned a lot because I think I had the common um, obsession slash misconception of what a vampire was and wasn't. And I learned a lot about the how how people not so much the vampire history but how people came to um you know the many of these people as you said you know they, they could have been playing role-playing vampires in college and then found that this was their way to express themselves or this was the community that spoke to them the most and it's a lovely combination of um physicality and glamour and beauty and dressing up and vampire balls and fangs and all of that and um, serious magic and commitment to helping one another and um, evolving one's mind, which that was the part that was very enlightening to me because my experience had mostly been, um, you know, in the world of witchery and I hadn't really considered um, the magical communities that would um, associate with this sort of iconic creature and all of the implications and, and why people would choose to go in that direction. So it's very, and, and, you know, they are living today. I mean, they might be your, might be delivering your mail. They might be your husband. They could be your husband. <laughs> yes. Could be in a secret. It's like a secret society. You never know, right? It's a secret. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm I'm actually, wow, Brian, that was a detail I wasn't expecting. I find out so much about you on this podcast. That I know. Last week you learned that he knew about some sort of paranormal stuff. and Yeah, you knew about all the paranormal stuff. Wow. Um, okay, Varla, uh, are there any, <laughs> <laughs> are there any superstitions that you, that you can think of off the top of your head that are rooted, like you said, in wisdom and reality that most people wouldn't understand where they're coming from? Oh, I have a fun one. Okay. Um, so, you know, when we think of, and you can think of Nosferatu or even Dracula sort of rising up from the coffin, right? Like the vampire has their, um, arms crossed and they slowly rise up. Well, back in the, in particular in the 1600s, especially in, um, in the UK. So in Scotland, it was very, very popular to, um, grave rob. Um, now that sounds, it wasn't all about getting, you know, the rings that you wanted. It was actually about advancing the medical community and the scientific community and medical science, because that was, you know, it was against the law. The church would not allow people to operate on cadavers. Um, our, our knowledge of the human anatomy and the body was very limited. And so it's not, it's not unknown that, you know, there were paid body snatchers who went into um, graves. And, and it was also very common for people to sort of be more laid out in tombs or in coffins in tombs, not necessarily all the way buried in the ground. Um, a lot of different ways to get up body, I guess. But you had, you know, paid people were paid to go and, you know, you, you, sometimes it was just for greed, but other times it was actually like, you know, some medical some medical students were, you know, scraped up some coin and they were paying the the grave digger to bring them a corpse to operate on in, in the cloak of night. I mean, talk about like dark and gruesome times. Dr. But this Frankenstein. Was, and that's Frankenstein it's was completely born out of that. 
that's Frankenstein. Um, that was totally born out of that, that idea of, you know, playing with life and death and, um, sort of that, well, the enlightenment movement really. So you have, so anyway, the, the fun thing, if, if you find corpses fun, the fun thing is, um, that rigor mortis would set in and people were laid to rest with their arms across their chest. That was very common way to you know, kind of cross their arms yeah. over. And um, when someone would pop open the grave, the, a body might slowly rise up because of the rigor mortis. And so of course now you didn't one, you didn't finish the job, right? So you're just going to run screaming out of there and say it was a vampire. <laughs> You're going to be like, oh, I got scared. And also they didn't know what rigor mortis was. So that's kind of something that we associate with vampires. Every vampire story practically or image involves a vampire in their coffin. And that's actually where it came from. Oh, this idea of rising from the dead. <laughs> and and like literally like with the with the arms across yeah. the chest rising up out of the coffin. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I think in in my book I called it bounce back. <laughs> it's the old legend that vampires uh, must sleep in coffins most likely arose from reports from grave diggers who saw corpses suddenly sit up in their coffins. The unusual occurrence can now be chalked up to the decomposition process and rigor mortis. Wow. Just goes to show you how important science can be in explaining certain things, which I know Brian is always looking for on the show. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's history. And, you know, you, you look at what you don't know, you know, hundreds of years ago, we just have no idea and it's going to lead to misconce misconceptions and, you know, sailors seeing, you know, creatures in the, you know, in the ocean, just because they had no idea what it was. And then you also get, you know, exaggeration, you know, oh, something moved and it turns yeah. into, you know, it's sitting up and. But then you also later find out that some of those creatures existed and could have existed like the Kraken, for example, hmm. you know, there, they, there was a, a time when that was all thought to be, well, there's no, there's no possible way this giant squid could exist. And then, uh, you know, we have since discovered that there are these great Pacific, you know, these giant Pacific squids that have been known to pull a boat or two down when someone's fishing. And then you combine that with um, cold waters. The, the Kraken was especially common in sort of the um, Nordic regions. That legend sort of was born from there. And you think the water was cold. The, the seas were less traveled and creatures could get bigger and live longer. So every time you, you know, I mean, not that everything can be explained, but sometimes the the um, we dismiss things as legends that are are rooted in in a great deal of truth. And in addition to that, I think we can be too dismissive of the importance of those stories in our uh, and what we need them for in our culture for a variety of reasons: human evolution, um, the innovation. Oh, uh, keeping an open mind, all of those things kind of tie into the practice of telling stories and um, uh, repeating legends and kind of um, belief in something other than what's tangible in front of us. What's your um, knowledge on mermaids? 
So I wrote a book on mermaids. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I might know more than uh, than the average ten-year-old um, girl. <laughs> Maybe not, actually. <laughs> um, so mermaids are a, a, again a very fascinating creature. Um, the book that I wrote, I one thing that I really wanted to do with it was set out to, I guess spoil the imagery a little bit of what we thought of as a mermaid. There are many, many terrifying stories, in particular in the Irish culture, of mermaid or mermaid-like creatures, the marrow, who are far more vicious and terrifying than, you know, Ariel. (laughs) So that was kind of my first goal was like, well, number one, let's talk about some of these like creepier, the, the darker side of mermaids. But, um, there are also lots of instances, as you were saying, Brian, that you know, you've know you got a sailor who's been at sea for a really long time. They've probably got scurvy. Um, their eyesight is maybe fading a little bit. Um, they're uh, definitely dehydrated. And they see, you know, they're, they're coming from England, right? And they sail down and they end up in the Caribbean or off, you know, Florida See where manatee, there are manatees. Yeah. And you've never seen anything like it, but it looks just like the mermaids of legend, but it looks like a giant fish, but it's not a fish. And it, so you can see that that would, you know, and it, it looks, I guess, fairly supple, probably after, you know, <laughs> three months at sea, you're thinking, oh, what's that? So there's definitely thing instances like that, that you can, you can see how something evolved into a grander story. But you also have the role of stories like this, keeping people from doing dangerous things. Um, Blackbeard actually was terrified of mermaids. This fearsome pirate who would, you know, light firecrackers in his beard and terrify all of his enemies would order ships to sail um, around areas that were marked on maps as being mermaid infested. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, you know, now you're thinking, well, because he didn't want his uh, he didn't want his shipmates to his crew to just get lulled off course, right? That's that's your first thought, right? Is like, of course not. You don't want them going overboard and going like, oh, mermaids, I'll go with you. But then I started thinking about it in a little bit more of a logical way, and manatees tend to be in shallower water, so mermaid infested waters would actually be a dangerous place to take your ship because you could run aground. So there are all these kinds of things where these symbols also could have meant other things for sailors to, in order to you know, protect themselves. I'm not saying mermaids aren't real. That is not my, that's not my shtick at all. In fact, quite the opposite. But I, I do recognize the, the evolution of stories and, and how they, you know, we can find science that matches up with it. We can find um, embellishments here and there, and we can find the importance of them in society. You know, keeping kids close to the hearth. Don't go in the bog, like you know, Peg Polly's going to pull you down. Well, also, you might not know you're in a bog, and then you would slip in. And if no one can hear you calling, and you're a little kid and you can't get out, then you could drown. So there's this creature that's in the bog that you don't go near. So there are. I mean, fairy tales especially are incredibly valuable in that way as they are in, in many other ways. 
That's very interesting because I had never heard of mermaids being represented in a darker light. And I also hadn't heard of fairies for the most part being um, shown in a darker light as well. They're always these tiny, sweet, little, playful, you know, sometimes sometimes up to some trickery, but, you know, like very sweet, playful beings, tiny beings that um, if you're lucky enough, you can see. You have written a book that um, also showcases a lot of the darker side. Can you go into the darker side of the fairy world? The fairy kingdom is terrifying. You do not want to fall asleep on a fairy mound and wake up in the fairy kingdom. It is full of trickery, um, menace, uh, all all manner of things. Now, not, not all fairies are set out to harm necessarily. Um, but there are fairies that will, so just, just as an umbrella term, we use the, the term fairy kingdom much as we might use, you know, the, the plant kingdom. It's sort of an umbrella term that doesn't necessarily connote teeny tiny little, you know, garden fairies with wings that we see in paintings and Tinkerbell-like creatures, right? It, it's, the, it's the term fairy or, or the fae are the term for this sort of other world of creatures. In Ireland, there are places that are known as fairy doors or fairy passages, and it's often associated with the underworld. And there are, you know, there's everything from pukas. Those are my personal favorite. Um, in some cases, you'll find a fairy in general being referred to as a puka. In parts of rural Ireland, sometimes they'll still refer to any kind of fairy as a puka. But when I talk about um, pukas, I'm talking about these shapeshifters that are usually horses or rabbits. And they love to prey upon town drunks who are deemed non-credible. And they have a tendency to sort of swoop in and take you, you know, the horse will throw you on the back and take you for this wild midnight ride. And, you know, you, you come to, um, in the ditch, uh, down the road and you're super late and your spouse is wondering, you know, I told you not to take that road. That's where the, that's where the puka is often seen. Um, totally AKA you should have come back from the pub like before dark. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> funny that you can like blame it on the puka. <laughs> I would come at home early. Yeah. Right. It's no, the, it is a good, sorry. I, it must've been a puka. I, I mean, I swear I, I, here's how it goes. And this, that's how the story always starts out. I left on time. <laughs> you, you do, you do blame. Nicole, you do blame electronic malfunctions on another planet, so. Mercury? Yeah. Fair. That's fair. Oh, well, Mercury is in charge of electronic communication. That's why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's totally normal. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I just, you know, this whole bar thing, though, I I love it because I can totally use that as as an excuse now. yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And there's, I have a couple of mermaid stories in my book too, where um, my favorite one was written by this woman 
and just for reference, like the, the books that I write, I write about modern day things. I write about my own personal experiences, but I also include like, if it's a particular topic like mermaids, I include some of my favorite mermaid stories of all time. And so one of the ones I included was this wonderful, like, Oh, I think it was written in like 1910 by this woman named Mabel and her, it's great because the whole story is about, it's called Ludie and the Mermaid and he goes down to the shore and he hears this singing and this kind of weeping. And so he goes over and he sees this beautiful mermaid and she's sort of like stuck among the rocks in a tide pool. And so she says, Oh, can you help me? And he's a little skeptical because he's been warned many a time not to go too close to a mermaid. So he yeah, I don't, I don't know. And she said, well, please, you know, I've got to get back to the sea. You know, if you, if you don't, if I don't get back in time, my husband, he'll eat all my children. So he's such a good man. Then he, he scoops her up and he starts to carry her out into the waves and just a little further in, I can't quite get there from here. And so he keeps kind of bringing her a little further in until suddenly, you know, the tide's kind of rushing in and it's, he realizes it's up to his neck and she's holding on to him and pulling him down. And so he manages to free himself and he gets home and he tells his wife this whole story about why he's late for supper, essentially, right? Like this is what happened. And in the end, that, that the final word in the story is something like, you know, uh, and she, she still made him go and do all of his chores. <laughs> and it's just like this hilarious, like very, very Irish story and just this hilarious kind of, cautionary tale but there's this turn of the century kind of um uh housewife's perspective over overlapping this old mermaid legend so in other words yeah that we're not buying it anymore that you're uh <laughs> that you're late because a mermaid you were trying to rescue a mermaid right he he portrays himself as this really innocent um great help and so it, there, there are a lot of great stories like that. Um, and I learned a lot about the fairy kingdom researching the book. Cause I had a, you know, similar understanding of, I mean, I had read a lot of the um, fairy tales uh, and old Irish tales as a kid. So I re-explored a lot of those, but there are some very dark creatures. There are things that pinch you. There are things that will, you know, put a pox on your, on your um, animals. And there are things that will tie to your kitchen. So there's just this vast array. I mean, it's, again, not unlike the plant kingdom. Um, there are just many, many different kinds of fairy creatures. Now, you write about all the stuff. You said that you write about um, past stories and things like that, but you also write about your experiences. What are some of your experiences with the fairy kingdom, like your own personal experience? So um, probably the, the, I mean, I have more paranormal, what would be considered paranormal experiences than I do have, um, I guess, supernatural. I know that sounds like to someone who maybe doesn't see the distinction between those two things. But um, so like, you know, I've had countless ghosts and, um, you know, sort of experiences like that, seeing and hearing and, and being in haunted places. Um, but with fairies, you know, that's something I always like to include people's stories in my books, um, whether they're, it's their encounters with ghosts or their encounters with um, mermaids or fairies. And 
I had one experience when I was a kid that I actually really kind of dismissed for many, many years. And I, I had seen what I thought was like a little, a little guy, a little leprechaun like guy um, down by this Creek where we were, I mean, we had, we were living basically in a campground for several months as my parents were looking for property. And we moved to this really rural place and I was about seven years old. So peak imagination time. So I, I saw something, some kind of little crouching, um, character, a little man who was probably, you know, the size of a Barbie or something. And I yelled to my mom and my sister to come see and when I turned around, you know, the only thing left was this, um, you know, the leaf was moving. I can still kind of see this leaf where he was kind of crouched under moving. And I just, I dismissed it. I, this, I must have just like read one too many stories. And there I was thinking, oh, you know, I saw a leprechaun. Um, and then years later, as I was reading some different stories, I found um, a description that was much was was much more like what I had seen and and much less like what I had read about as you know a creature like that would look and you know lucky for me I had a mom who was very open-minded and would say things like oh you know well, it was probably just looking out for you or you know it probably disappeared when you when you yelled um but I have also found that, you know, I do a lot of um, interviews with people that, you know, are in the paranormal community or the supernatural community. And there's a lot of overlap there with, um, oh, alien abductions and things like that and poltergeists. And I have found that there were many creatures that I think could, that match up quite quite well, the description of these kind of entities or whatever, match up really well with these old fairy creatures. Um, there are certain imps that can live in your house and can cause scratches and bruising, which is not unlike what people say a poltergeist will do. You know, people will claim that they wake up and they have these scratches all over them. Um, the a whole idea of alien abduction, it's that's one of the oldest stories in 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 the um, storytelling is, is in the fairy kingdom that you fall asleep or you somehow uh, gain passage into this other world and you lose track of time and you think you're there dancing around at this wonderful party and uh, then you finally wake up or you break the spell somehow and you're, you know, Rip Van Winkle, it's, you're, you're naked and 20 years older wandering around the woods. So those kinds of stories um, are not unlike the idea that, you know, you've been taken into a alien craft and then dropped back off alongside a road somewhere. You know, so my, my experience is my personal experience with a fairy encounter are relatively limited compared to um, I think what some people have, have claimed to experience. I wake up I've wake, I've woken up several times lately with bruises on my legs that look like fingerprints. Oh, really? Yeah, and this has happened to me a few times, and it actually just happened to me a week or two ago. I'm looking down at my leg, and I'm like, "Why? Why are there bruises there? I didn't hit myself. I didn't, you know." And I, it's always when I'm waking up. Well, I would have a, my my suggestion would be to consider that you might have some kind of like house brownie or a creature in your house that 
you know, something of the fairy kingdom that is not satisfied somehow. So these are, there are a whole class of domestic fairies. We probably all know the um, Dobby from uh, the mm-hmm. Harry Potter books, right? House so elf. he's a house elf. There's brownies. Um, some people call them. Nicole loves brownies, by the way. <laughs> oh, you, you love brownies. Still, brownies love brownies, actually. Oh. You can give them, you give something. So the idea is that there are all these domestic fairies that will help you. They will clean. They will, they will look out for you. They will protect your animals or your, your garden or whatever it is. But you, you, you can't just not acknowledge it. So one thing that's very common with those more domestic fairies is to give them some kind of offering. They really like food and drink, but it can't be crappy scraps. It cannot be like the leftovers. You have to give them a little little offering. They like wine. They like cake, things like that. It doesn't have to be right in your room. It could be somewhere else. But that is something that once upon a time was very common to leave these things out, a saucer of milk and um, you know, a little, a, a nice little oat cake or something to appease the spirits that then help the house run and keep things tidy and keep everybody healthy. So you could try it and see what happens. So I need to bake brownies is what you're saying. You could break bake brownies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bake brownies for the brownies. But that's kind of like, we think of garden gnomes. That's their role. Garden gnomes are protectors. They're not unlike a gargoyle on a building. They're, you place them in your garden because you are emulating this um, protective spirit. And the reason that we see them so often as stone is that they're associated with, they look more like a gnome or a dwarf, which those are associated with mountains and um, rocks and earth. So they, there's a reason even today that we have these cute little gnomes and things that you see in people's yards. Um, they were thought to protect, especially. If you think of a time when you really rely, you couldn't go to the grocery store to get food for your family. You had to grow it. You had to, this was how you protected your house and your home and your livelihood and your sustenance. And, um, you know, by any means necessary. And to work in harmony with something that is an elemental, that is part of the natural world, and to pay that world respect i mean we could learn a lot from that today so did you Mm -hmm. did you love the the movie fantastical beasts and where to find them okay so i i have to i haven't seen it because i am working through all of the books Mm. with my son right now so we're not there yet and so i don't want to i want him to have his own view of what the characters look like and everything so that when we see the movies, mm. he, I mean, I've seen them obviously, but when, when we see the movies together, he, he'll already have formed. Sure. I just want to read all the books first. So we haven't gotten to that one yet. That's smart. Cause your mind, it helps your mind to really get creative and form. Oh, it was so cute too. Cause I was reading, I was reading a part to him. He reads them by himself, but sometimes I read them to him and I was doing like this silly Hagrid voice, which just, you know, some kind of awful version of a Scottish accent. And then later we were standing around uh, and I said something to him in that voice, but not as Hagrid. And he said, why, why are you doing Hagrid's voice? And it was just so cute to me because he thought, oh, <laughs> he thinks that's what Hagrid sounds like because all he knows is me reading it, you know. And I thought that's really sweet because he's not seen 
the movies doesn't have any other, you know, it's just the, the beauty and wonder of books. And those books are, I mean, she, she really did yeah. an incredible job of using folklore and um, fairy tales and beliefs and that the thing that is so wonderful about that and why I think I'm so drawn to fairy tales or even tales of the supernatural and the paranormal is because during that, like when you're reading it or someone's telling you the story and I mean, Brian, you say you're a cynic, but you'll probably really get this. Like even, even in that moment, like your, your doubt is suspended enough to believe it and go with it and let your, your mind starts producing pictures. And I think that something that is such a valuable thing for our minds. We really need that to move, you know, to move mountains. You have to believe that you can do it. And so if it, if that starts with the belief in mermaids and then turns into, you know, someone who uh, creates the cure for cancer or something like that, I mean, that's that kind of like open thinking is required. And I think that that's why we've always had, you know, since we could say um, that, you know, that we were human, since we had that conscious thought, we've always had some kind of wrestle and wrangle with the supernatural, with the unknown, with um, um, a, a spiritual force that we can't It, it is explain. interesting how it, and, some things just last through through time. You know, I mean, a, a, a lot of what mm-hmm. we think of as fairy tales and a lot of these creatures i i think stem from the brothers grimm and i'm i'm sure you're incredibly well versed in in what they wrote so what the brothers grimm did is they went around um uh, germany and sort of parts of um northern and eastern europe and they went around and they took the stories of the peasants essentially they were educated and they they recorded these stories and they um wrote them and published them um, William Butler Yeats did something very similar in Ireland. He traveled around and he gathered all of the the stories of uh, the you know quote unquote peasants. Um, and you have instances of these cer- certain people, educated people, who were recognizing the value of these stories and recording them in order to not lose them. At the same time, superimposing their own belief system on top of those stories. So you have something that was told in the oral tradition for hundreds of years, now recorded by the local reverend because he has a penchant toward the spiritual and he he is uh, an artist and educated and can read and write. And so now he's going around and recording these stories. In fact, the greatest book on werewolves ever written was by a reverend. His name was Sabine Baring Gould, and he was, I believe, in the Church of England. And he's best known for the hymn Hmm. Onward Christian Soldiers. That's what we all know him for. But he spent a lot of time traveling in the north, in um, the Scandinavian countries, especially recording um, werewolf stories. And he wrote this massive volume, massive volume of work called, um, it's just called Werewolves. And it's really, he, in it, he repeatedly makes the case for the existence of werewolves and he draw it's a, it's a wonderful record of, I mean, some of it's just his own musings on things, 
and it's a bit difficult to read because it was you know written in I think like 1815 or something like that so it's kind of dry but it's you know in there there are all these great stories and a lot of times what you had is that you had Christian misinterpretation of pagan rituals such as uh, a harvest uh, ritual that involved donning skins and dancing around a fire um, in an effort to kind of make that connection between earth and spirit. Um, these kind of rituals that were then, you know, it was written down that they were, um, tr- you know, tr- they were transforming themselves into werewolves and, and you know, chasing women around mm-hmm. the forest. They may have been doing that as well, but that I mean that's part of the fertility ritual. But that there you have people who are have never seen this kind of thing recording it with their own point of view. And that is what we are left with in the written record. And that and much of the um oral record was expunged. So that really ch- changed the dynamic of um belief and and how we looked at these creatures and how we how we view them today probably from you know the 1400s through the uh 2000s i think it's great i i actually really miss the whole storytelling process i think back to the idea of sitting around a campfire and you know being told stories especially as a child and and being able to continue those traditions on for other children as you're an adult i think that's something that we're kind of losing you know, in this day and age, we're, we're relying too much, I guess, on like cartoons and movies to continue on the stories. But it's, there's something to be said about the human element of the oral story and being able to tell that. And I like you said, I, I think it really helps us expand our minds and allow the imagination to strengthen and grow and this idea of possibility. It's, it's lacking, like we're, we're losing that, that, um, that uh, connection to the idea of anything is possible or these ideas of whatever they may be, fairy tales, uh, you know, whatever creative stories that are being told, but there's something there that, I don't know, just adds some level of curiosity and what if, and could it be true? And and it, it adds something I feel. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, what if fairies exist those are the same kids that are going to be saying, what if we tried this and um, we, you know, got to Mars? Or what if we tried this and, oh, look, this, the, the way this cell reacts with something actually changes the dynamic of this disease. I mean, there are that, that, that what if is completely vital to our survival. And um, that's my... That's my argument in the uh, case for fairy tales and and the (laughs) supernatural creatures. (laughs) They'll save humanity (laughs) with their inhumanity. (laughs) I love it. And Brian, I love that you're so versed on this. I'm so impressed. You should be. I know a lot of stuff. (laughs) You do. You do, actually. I'm quite quite impressed that our skeptic is not... so much acting like a skeptic oh, I, right this, now. <laughs> I, I've always loved, I don't want to say make-believe, but I mean, I I love the idea that all of these things exist. I mean, there's no, there's no reason they shouldn't. 
there's no reason they can't. We just, you know, the the logical brain comes in and okay, you can't you can't really find them or see them, and you know you can you can chalk it up to one of two things: they don't exist, or they do, and their whole existence is to not be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that is something that you have with um, any kind of supernatural or paranormal experience as well. That um, because I do get asked, it's like, well, if there are fears, like, why? Well, you know, one to show us that we don't know everything. (laughs) We we know like one drop of uh, what is really going on, and but also I think. That idea that if if they exist, then um, you know who how you can find evidence, you know, probably to support any case. But the idea that you might accept something that is completely intangible, there's, I mean, people do it every day when they pray to God, they accept it. So there's a certain need that we have to kind of accept that things that we to fight against, but also accept that there are things we, we can't really fully understand or see or hold in our own hands, which Mm -hmm. is a very frustrating process and why we have the scientific process because we're trying to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. But even, even within, even within science, when, when you start to look at the, you know, some of the current studies that are going on within, within the quantum field and, you know, we're able to, you know, use, you know, incredibly powerful microscopes to just see very small things. And, and I, I forget what it is in, in particular, but it's, there's a, there's a particular way that we know atoms should behave or protons or photons or, or something should behave. And when you look at it, they don't behave that way. And when you look away, they, you know, they act, they act differently. So, I mean, this is, this is within the realm of science. We can see that when you look at something, it changes. So why can't that exist for something that, you know, they're not expecting to be seen and that's how you get a glimpse of them. But then once they realize you're looking at them, you know, they have, they have some sort of ability to, you know, affect mind control. And that kind of gets back to, I, I think one of the the core powers of a, of a vampire is mind control. If you can control somebody's mind, oh yeah, you can make them not see you. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And I do think that when you have, um, when you have that ability to see, so if you do have an encounter or you do have a head scratcher or a moment um, it, you know, once upon a time, that was considered a real gift. The second sight, the ability to that not everybody can see these things. And certainly you can't, even if you can occasionally, you can't see them all the time. And so, it, you know, once upon a time, that was thought to be like a very intimate and very special experience that you would uh, get a glimpse into this other world. And so I think that it has a lot of um, sort of emotional value for people as well, because to, you know, I mean, it, for, for 
many, many stories that I hear, especially when somebody sees like you know, a ghost or they're in a haunted house or something like that, you know, that there's a couple of elements that are always um, very consistent. And one of the most consistent is the, I'm not a believer, but this happened to me. And it, it's mm-hmm. that pivotal moment mm-hmm. when you really can no longer mm-hmm. explain it away. And I have met people and interviewed people who have been in the paranormal community doing research for years and years and years and never actually seen a ghost themselves. And then will share with me the moment and how that, that changed their perception. Um, because there are certain things that you just can't quantify. You can't, you won't be able to explain. And if you could explain them, you would stop looking for them, right? You would stop thinking that, you know, I mean, if you could really explain everything away, um, and then you'd just be, I guess, then you'd just be a zombie. You wouldn't really, you know, you can't explain everything away. That's the whole point. I think, you know, but I think, um, Brian, you just use such a good, um, scientific point of how I think it's like how electrons behave I think it is you know and and how this idea of you know you Varla just mentioning about how our second sight was a was used to be considered a great gift and now it's kind of shunned and considered like um kind of hokey but from my experience and I know Lisa has experienced this as well you tend to see things out of the corners of your eye but as soon as you look directly on it, it goes away. And that kind of can speak to this idea of how, you know, what you were just talking about, Brian, with the um, how things behave and, you know, do we actually have a uh, um, an effect, an influence on the reality when we put our attention on it? versus not having our attention on it. And is it still there? Is it not there? It's just, it's all very well, interesting. That, that kind of, you know, gets into something we've talked about a lot on the show, creating your reality. If you're creating mm-hmm. your reality, to me, that idea is, you know, something I'm focused on, you know, something I'm thinking about. There's no reason for me to create my reality on the other side of the world when I can't, you know, look at it, but I can, you know, look out the window and see what I can see. And then the subconscious, you know, they, they kind of talked about it in, you know, that the, the movie Inception, where your subconscious fills in the details. So you're, you're, or, or the, not the, it fills in everything else, you know, you focus on the details of what you're seeing. And then it just kind of, you know, the edges just create them, create, create themselves. And maybe that's where these, you know, beings and creatures live as on the, the edges of reality. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and they're often depicted as being sort of in the, you know, this other kind of underbelly or underworld. And I, I do get asked that a lot. You know, Are they just around us all the time and they are like you just can't see them? Or is there another dimension? And I think that also goes back to our relationship with time. And fairies definitely represent our relationship with time. Because time in the fairy kingdom is totally different than time in the world of mortals. And you see that again and again with those kind of stories where, you know, that Rip Van Winkle effect, where you wake up and, and everything has changed or, or you know, you go on this crazy ride with the puka and then, you know, next thing you know, you're in a ditch like a mile from home <laughs> and, and, and it's getting, getting light out and you've really 
really in trouble. Um, but you do have that kind of relationship with time. And if you consider, you know, we tend to, in the Western world, have this very linear view of time. I know that there are people who have changed that and changed their way of thinking. But, you know, you think of, if you think of time in a more circular fashion, um, if you think of, uh, you know, things kind of going in a loop and being more connected, then if you're not thinking linear and you're thinking more um, kind of, I guess, more connected and more web-like, then it doesn't become as much of a debate about whether, you know, this chair next to me is empty because it's empty or this chair next to me is empty because I can't see what's in it. Um, and it becomes more of a, an idea of things being able to exist essentially at the same time, but not really within the same time that like that, that time is not, um, a fixed set point, but it is our relationship with time. Mm. That is, how we are perceiving things so that if you are perceiving time as like, okay, it's eight o'clock, I got to get to work and at 10 o'clock and then, you know, we all know time in the morning before work or getting your kids ready for school, that goes way, way faster. Uh, you know, that's like this, there's never enough time there. And then you're stuck at a meeting and that, that meeting goes on and on and on. And now that same amount of time, that same 20 minutes feels totally different. So we have this different relationship with it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I think about our relationship with the supernatural is that, you know, we have, um, this sort of, you know, sometimes it's, it's this hurried and there, there simply can't be thing. And sometimes we are like sort of slowed down and, and tuned in enough to, to have those experiences. And it's not it, very often it is in the middle of the night because that's a time when our brains are finally like relaxed enough. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it anything could, can go really. And I think that I personally have, when I'm working on a book, believe it or not, I actually run the gamut of there is no way this could possibly exist to this absolutely has to exist to, you know, I would die if this didn't actually really exist. <laughs> so I, I do like, because I get a lot of information. I get a lot of people sending me stories. Um, a lot of vulnerable people sharing stories with me that I try to honor, but that I don't necessarily believe. And that is a slippery slope that that slope of judgment and belief so um it can be you know it can be tricky to um navigate that sometimes well your stories sound very interesting where can our audience get your books so my books are still all in print yay and they're available anywhere books are sold you can find them on amazon IndieBound, your local bookstore barnes and noble any of those kind of places um, and I have a website, it's varlaventura.net, and that I have links to my books and upcoming things, and I'll have a link to this podcast on there, I hope. Oh, that would be <laughs> awesome. Um, well, this yeah. has been just such a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot um, today about the vampires and the fairy worlds and other things, and I think and more importantly, it's just kind of awakened that importance or reminder of that importance of the storytelling nature and what that does for us as a 
just as a society and what that does for our mind and allow just not for just for children, but for our adult minds to explore. And there is this, this, I I feel like there's this deep seed within many of us that want all of this stuff to be true on some level, because it makes it kind of a little bit more exciting to be here, I feel like. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Varla, for being on the show. And to our audience, all of uh, the information to find Varla's books, if you want to read them or learn more about her, we'll leave her website and her details in the um, in the information uh, below uh, in this podcast. And uh, thanks again, Varla, for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And to our audience, we will be back with you guys again next week. We love you all. Thank you. Thank you all for joining our show. We appreciate you tuning in and supporting us. If any of you have any questions you would like answered on the show or any guests that you would like to hear on our show, please email that information to us at info at enlightenup.us or send us a voice message using the Anchor app. There's a super cool feature on there that allows you to send us a message or ask us a question with a touch of a button right from the app. And please continue to support us by following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you haven't checked out Nicole's channel on YouTube yet, head on over there for some more insight from her, or you can visit her website, inflexibleme.com, where you can book a personal coaching session or a tarot reading, watch some of her most informative videos, or you can sign up for her newsletter. And if you're interested in some light language healing, head to my YouTube channel, Lisa Loves Love, or send me an email to lisa at lisaloveslove.com to inquire about your own personal reading. Thank you again for joining us and supporting us, and we'll be back with you all next week.